Hello everyone, and welcome back to Election Day. This week, I'm continuing my series on Joe Biden's policy agenda, and I'm going to be covering his economic policies. But before we begin that, I want to provide a little bit of political context that I found very interesting, and I think that's being discussed quite a lot, and that's Joe Biden's approval rating. President Biden is experiencing a sort of post-inauguration honeymoon where he receives a boost in popularity just for that feel-good moment. And of course, that's compounded by the fact that an incoming president doesn't have really anything for the public to hate him for quite yet. And especially in the case of Joe Biden, he's had a very proactive first few days signing a lot of things, and those are mostly quite popular measures. He's showing the public that he's doing a lot, and the things he's doing are crowd-pleasing. So, he is still on that honeymoon period. I don't know when it's going to end. But another interesting observation is comparing his approval with that of the previous president. Of course, you have Democrats supporting him, Republicans mostly opposing, but he has quite broad approval among independents, which is something that number 45 never enjoyed, and that's why his approval was always below 50%, whereas Biden's is comfortably above. So that's another interesting thing I noticed, is that Biden's capturing not just the left, but the left and the center. And even if that center is ever diminishing, it's still quite an important section. So that's that. And then let's head straight into how is President Biden going to address the economy? And by the way, going back to that idea of a post-inauguration honeymoon, the economy is one area where Joe Biden will sort of get the benefit of the doubt and ride a comfortable wave because typically, and I personally don't agree with this, but in general, Republicans are more trusted on fiscal and economic issues more so than Democrats. But because of the COVID-19 pandemic, people do want government intervention. People do desperately need aid. And Republicans have been less willing to offer that than Democrats. So Joe Biden is walking into office in a very unique time where his party is actually trusted on the economy. And Biden certainly does want to capture that moment. He, in terms of what he wants to achieve as part of the COVID-19 economic response, he does want big government at this point in time. And I'm going to use that phrase even though it's become sort of a dirty word in politics. So in this big debate of what role does the government play in this situation of a huge recession caused by the pandemic, Biden is very clearly on the side of the public, and as the head of the executive branch, he is being, in some sense, a torchbearer of greater economic stimulus and relief efforts. 
And another quick terminology thing here, I've heard stimulus relief bill tossed around a lot, but I think it would be more accurate and representative. I think I saw this on the Ezra Klein show on the New York Times to call it an emergency response. This is not a natural economic decline. So anyway, as part of this comprehensive wartime effort that is being fought not only on a health front, but also on a U.S. economy front, Joe Biden most notably wants to include a legislative aspect to that effort in addition to the executive orders that he has already signed in his first couple days in office. So you probably already know this, but the big landmark pitch that spearheads Biden's battle against the health and economic fronts of the disease is his $1.9 trillion government spending bill. That includes funding for helping to distribute the vaccine, for providing personal protective equipment to person to medical personnel. It includes money for ramping up testing capacities in the US. It also includes $1,400 payments to all Americans in addition to the $600 already passed to create a total of $2,000. It will provide relief funding for small businesses, funding for schools to help them open, and so on and so forth. There's a lot included. And the economic rationale behind such a big tab for Congress to pick up is that as Senator Bernie Sanders often talks about on shows and stuff, the idea is that this is not the time for government to be worried about, you know, wasteful spending or the deficit or anything like that. That in an emergency situation like the one we're facing now, very similar to the one we faced in 2008, it is up to the government to take action to save the economy. And the very simple truth is, there are people struggling. There are people who desperately, desperately need this government help. And on the health front, obviously, as America's trying to find an end to the situation, this would be a big boost. The argument is that when you're about to die, you don't worry about how much you have in your bank account. Keeping things open, keeping things up and running is the most important thing. And in fact, economists do project positive results through stimulus. So that's the argument for. That's why people with academic economic backgrounds like Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen support big spending at this point in time. And it's why... Press Secretary Jen Psaki was talking about how President Biden's main worry isn't that $1.9 is too much. If anything, he's worried it might be too little for the size of the situation we're facing. And again, the public does agree. But then, of course, you have the political reality 
of having to, in a very partisan Congress, pass nearly $2 trillion with a 50-50 split with a party, the Republican Party, that's really opposed to big government at any time ever. And there is also a very legitimate claim that Biden's basically, through this bill, just trying to not let a good crisis go to waste. Like, there's a provision about raising the minimum wage to $15. There is a lot of money that is going to be diverted to improving America's energy infrastructure. And that's something that even people who might agree with the premise of stimulus might not want to sign on to. So in response, that's where a moderated compromise proposal might arise, like there was one proposed by 10 Republican senators, including Susan Collins of Maine, that only cost $600 billion. And that would include some of the core components of the Biden plan, although obviously you could argue that everything is essential. And then I think the biggest difference is that it goes under the idea of targeted assistance, that you're specifying which people need help. So you're only helping the people who are most desperate instead of giving money to everyone. So the political reality of the COVID-19 economic policy is just as important as what the policies are, obviously, because you need to get it passed. And there are many Democrats who argue that this, at this time, bipartisanship isn't the most important thing. We need to use whatever means necessary, like budget reconciliation is one that's being proposed, to just get money into the hands of people. And then you have Republicans who say, hey, the administration's got to be willing to compromise. You can't just push your thing through, use Senate procedures, and they want to negotiate a plan meeting it halfway. So that's the COVID situation. And obviously that is the most immediately important because Biden can't really try to shake up the American system until some degree of normality is restored. But looking past that, looking at a broader vision for the U.S. economy, let's talk about where Joe Biden stands. And I think it's impossible to talk about the 2021 perspective on economic issues or Biden's perspective without taking a second look at Andrew Yang's 2020 campaign. And obviously this was a minor campaign at the time, even as a political junkie, I only paid very minimal attention to what he was actually talking about. But I think it's amazing because he was truly maybe just 12 months ahead of his time. And the things that he was saying one year, two years ago, are now firmly within our view of how the economy functions. A major parallel for sure is the government stimulus during COVID-19, giving out money to people, taking a big role. That direct payment idea was the signature thing of Andrew Yang. 
and that fits into his broader vision and theory, which is that America needs to evolve past an economy of mass consumption, a purely capitalistic economy, and become an economy that works for the people. And he talks about how the root of so many of our problems today isn't necessarily just government incompetence or things somehow spiraling out of control through the stock market. He's talking about a more fundamental issue, and that's the long-term crisis, quote-unquote crisis, of automation and the fourth industrial revolution, as well as jobs moving overseas to cheaper countries. A very memorable quote from him was saying that Donald Trump got the problems right, only the solutions wrong. And he talks about how the previous president appealed to some great frustration that a lot of people in the Rust Belt had as their jobs were being shipped overseas, their towns were being deserted, and the economic situation was just deteriorating by the day. And I think just from news gathering and information gathering here and there, you can sense that this has become the consensus of the Democratic Party and the viewpoint of Joe Biden. But here's where the president does differ from Andrew Yang. Andrew Yang's solution to the problem was that the government should give everyone $1,000 a month. And now that's partially true due to COVID-19, but long-term Biden has a different view, and it's reminiscent of a Democratic Party of maybe 10 years past, the Rust Belt Democratic Party of workers. And quick side note, obviously that's why he was able to win the election in the first place. So what do I mean by old-school democratic left-wing policies? Well, I think the prime example is Joe Biden's newly created by american policy that isn't actually all too different in principle from the previous president, even if in practicality it differs a lot. And the idea behind Buy American is, is run contradictory to the general narrative, historical narrative, saying that the American manufacturing industry is not dead, trying to fuel that and light it a little bit more. He's encouraging companies through government action, to keep their jobs in the United States. His international trade policy, as I said in last week's foreign policy episode, is quite hostile towards China. He doesn't think they're playing fair, and as a fast-growing economy, he doesn't like their influence on the U.S. workforce. So when we think about Donald Trump's harsh China policies, tariffs, protectionism, don't expect that to immediately go away. So that's that, trying to resurrect American manufacturing, as difficult and even impossible as that may be. And then he's also a big unions guy, 
he always talks about that, and of course that helped him in the general election. He is on the side of workers. When we think about Bernie's vision of class warfare, the poor against the rich, Biden, as someone who is still a liberal, still a Democrat, he stands on the side of the worker. I think that's one of the things that might have surprised a lot of people. Biden, upon coming into office, was more liberal than maybe a lot of liberals would have expected. He didn't just stick around the middle, he did take decisive action as a Democratic president. So if he can continue to get things done, he will be a surprisingly progressive candidate. And in some sense, he's also the ultimate compromise candidate for the Democratic Party because he's compiling ideas from throughout the campaign, like Andrew Yang's, as I said, and putting them into action as a person who can handle the being in office side of things. Of course, we'll still have to wait and see for results, though. The big difference between Biden and Democrats further to the left isn't necessarily his agenda or his platform, besides maybe not proposing Medicare for all. It's not really his agenda. It's that he's generally a moderate persona and has a moderate instinct. And anyone can say progressive things, but we'll see how far he's willing to go to get it done. So anyway, going back to him being on the side of workers, he does support a $15 minimum wage, he supports a lot of funding to help American innovation. He's very progressive, actually, on the issue of education and on student loans, although I might talk about education later. He wants free universities, free public universities, for those earning under a certain amount. He wants to raise various taxes by a couple percentage points, for Americans making more than $400,000 and significantly increase the capital gains tax for people with incomes over $1 million. So on tax, once again, he is a liberal politician. And then going circling all the way back to what I said first, his main thing is being a workers politician and a workers president. So he wants to support unions, expand overtime pay, and invest greatly in creating new manufacturing jobs. So that's what I'm talking about when I say Joe Biden is a sort of old-school, Midwestern, appealing, Democratic politician. He's one of the few people on either side of the aisle that still believes in saving American manufacturing and American jobs in this way, and I don't know how I feel about it. It does seem to go against a bigger historical trend. And that doesn't necessarily mean he isn't willing to put in place progressive action. It's just a bit of a contrast to this new brand of liberalism emerging from the East Coast and the West Coast that might be better represented by a different liberal president. So yeah, as I've listed, he does have a lot of 
concentration of wealth measures in place to improve equity. Circling all the way back to former presidential candidate Andrew Yang, another one of his talking points is the idea of a winner-take-all economy induced by globalization, automation, and all these changes. Talking about how this technological revolution and industrial revolution is leading to more wealth at the top, less wealth in the middle and at the bottom. Now, that brings me towards the conclusion of this episode. Definitely the first step in Biden's plan has to be crisis management. That's what he's doing by trying to push through much bigger government engagement and spending during the COVID-induced economic, as well as, of course, public health crisis. And then, moving beyond that, he, as someone who is influenced by the Andrew Yang movement, is going to address the decline in the manufacturing industry by actually trying to prop it up and fully resurrect it with things like Buy American, and I'm sure we'll see more of those kinds of things. And he will be, in my view, a more progressive candidate than a lot of us might have thought otherwise. And not only on workers' issues like I've stressed, but also on taxing the rich, on education, on healthcare, on climate change, all those things. And this was, in fact, one of the big worries and election talking points for the Trump campaign and the Republican Party, that Joe Biden wasn't just Joe Biden, he was hiding the entire Democratic agenda behind him. That's not entirely false, because he is the ultimate compromise candidate, but you know, to provide hope also for those on the right, the idea of a compromise candidate also includes voices on the right as well as further to the left. So we'll see what happens with the COVID response. Does he choose to go down the path of budget reconciliation or the path of negotiating a bill like that proposed by these 10 Republican senators? We've been getting mixed messages. But once emergency mode is over, I do expect that you can see some degree of negotiation and compromise. After all, even with the COVID bill, which it's so important to get past fast and get that help out, he talked about how the $1.9 trillion was just a first draft, that if there are better ideas, he'd be happy to incorporate that. On the other hand, and there's a lot of buts here, but you could also argue that's just a token statement. That's not my view, but you could argue that. Anyway, I've been rambling on way too long. During that conclusion, I talked about how he could be more progressive, perhaps, maybe not, on things like education, on healthcare, and on climate change. Each of those will hopefully get its own episode within this season, maybe the next season. And climate change policies during the Biden administration is going to come to you next Friday. And with me is going to be someone who is much more well-informed 
and opinionated on climate change than I am. So look out for that. Thank you for listening and see you next week.